Welcome to Doctor Who A to Z, a show that covers everything Doctor Who from beginning to end, from 1963 to present, from Hartnell to Gatwa, from Auton to Zygon. Howdy, Whovians. Welcome to Doctor Who A to Z. My name is Alan. Is this death? Oh, God. I'm Josh. And I'm <laughs> Ashley. <laughs> oh, that was good. All right. So in case you didn't pick up on the clues this week, we are going to be diving into the Peter Davison final story, the caves of Androzani. Looking forward to that. Before we do that, we've got three quick news items we were going to get to. First of all, we have very sad news that came out this past week, and that is uh, Michael Jaston, who we all know and love on Doctor Who from playing the Valiard passed away this week and um that was really really sad news he was very recently on the one of the doctor who cruises and i think it was rob it was it rob alsop or was it dominic glenn who said they had just seen him and he looked in great spirits everything you know he seemed like he was in great health and you know a week or so later he was sadly gone mm. so that's really really awful yeah it's too bad. I mean, I what do you say? I feel like, I, you know, there are some podcasts to listen to that, you know, talk about different, um, you know, topics, comics, things like that. And, you know, we're getting to the age where I feel like every new episode I listen to a podcast, like somebody else has passed away. <laughs> and here we are once again. Yeah. Somebody else has passed away. It's a shame. Yeah, I know. It's it's that. It's, I mean, you know, when you're talking about a show that's been around for 60 years. You know, yes, that's all there is. It's just death all around us. Yeah, well, he was he was always fun to watch as the Valyard and he, him sparing off of uh, Colin was always fun. And his performances uh, for Big Finish, they brought him back a couple of times. Always good to yeah. hear him. So, yeah, yeah, it's a shame. Definitely. All right. So after that, we have an announcement that came out just a couple of days ago. And this is um, a sort of an update on the Blu-ray line of the classic season, full season releases. And that is Pete McTie, who's the executive producer of the films that they've been doing for trailers, announcing each set, is saying that they are going to be going on a bit of a rest from doing those films, which is kind of heartbreaking. He says that they are a lot of work and particularly something as elaborate as the last one that they, that they did, which was Leela versus the Time War. They don't have a big budget. They have, of course, the time constraints that you naturally think of when you're talking about Doctor Who. And I guess, it, I mean, you know, as frequently as the Blu-rays come out, it takes time to produce these things, and he's just needing some space from it. So he says, quote, we've kind of got half of one in the can that we did 18 months ago, and there's more coming up but we're reaching a point where we're going to have to have a breather from those trailers for a while because they're a lot of work. We kind of got to a point where it's like, where do you go from that? So I guess he's finding it a struggle to continue to top the, I mean, they've done some amazing work on these things. And I, I mean, that started out just being trailers and then it got into like character pieces with the actors. And now it's like full fledged, many episodes with in character that are 
I mean, I think they're canon as far as the story of Doctor Who goes. So, I mean, they, they've gotten bigger and bigger. So I can understand his position, but man, it is sad to see him go. Yeah, it is a shame. It was usually the most exciting part of these Blu-rays <laughs> coming out. I mean, because, you know, I've only bought these stories at least twice before, if not more than that. <laughs> right. And uh, so, you know, that that would get the hype up and get you ready to want to buy the Blu-rays again. So it'll be a shame that it's stopping. But, I, you know, I do get it. There's only so much that you can do. There's only so many companions you can bring back and and do something with them. I mean, I, I mean, that don't, I mean, there's still lots of things that they could do. Like you keep, uh, I, I mean, and it's not like you can only have to stop at one for a particular companion. You could do another one, something else or related to mm -hmm. them, which would be fun to see, but yeah. You know, and he, and he talked about going more traditional with like clips as a, the trailer. And there's still interesting things that you can do with that. So, I mean, I hate to see these really elaborate character pieces go by the wayside, but, you know, I think we're still going to get some really good trailers and really interesting new things with them. So, you know, it'll be fine. One thing that was interesting in that article was uh, they said they were talking about the uh, the most recent one. Uh, they, they're like, it only took like four hours to to shoot, right? I mean, so it's a... Uh, which makes sense because it's really just uh, Leela that they're shooting and they're yeah. going to superimpose the, the CG Daleks or whatever. But um, but I, and I understand the work is on the, the other end of it, right? The work is like on either side. You're writing it and then you're doing the the CG and stuff. Uh, but it is I thought it was kind of funny that they were like, uh, there was like, it takes so much work. It only took about four hours to do it. Um, so, I mean, in the context, I mean, I'm in, I've done production. I know what that means, but I, I thought that was pretty funny, but it's also interesting that that, that really cool piece took about four hours to shoot. And then, uh, they, of course, Nick Briggs does the voice and they do all those things. And so, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more to it. Yeah. And lastly, we have, as on the day that we are recording this, we have an announcement from Big Finish, you know, and they're always announcing new upcoming releases. And we usually talk about them on the show. But this one is a little bit different because this one really caused a stir. And that is they are doing an adaptation of 1994, the novel Goth Opera, which was written by Paul Cornell. They're doing this as a full cast audio adapted by Elizabeth Miles, who we heard most recently, at least on our show, we heard in um, the 60th anniversary one, whatever that was called. <laughs> what was that one called? <laughs> Once in something. Once yeah, in future? future. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, this was, I saw people who don't normally listen to Big Finish share this news out of like sheer excitement. So this is a really, really special story that people love and this really got a lot of excitement from a lot of people i mean it just kind of blows my mind that because we've heard for years now about like how much of financial dud that the novel adaptations were you know even though i absolutely love and adore them and so excited for them and was waiting for them to do more and they just didn't and it didn't seem like there was ever going to be another one even though people keep always asking about it i mean people would, would talk about this one and boy people love to talk about getting an adaptation of lung barrel so much right all the time 
Right. They, they they want that really bad. I'm surprised. But I mean, I guess this opens that door back up. Maybe we're not so far away from getting a long barrel adaptation after all. Who knows? Possibly. I wonder if this is a testing the waters to see if there's, you know, new viability in this line. I, I found it interesting. I didn't realize it had been since uh, 2000. Oh, it had been since 2016 since they had done one. I think that's what it said. It had been mm-hmm. a number of years, right? Uh, it, it didn't, uh, which is funny because that's, I think, Josh, when we ended our podcast and we did some of those, I had to kind of think, right? I kind of thought they'd already done goth opera. Uh, but uh, but it, it seems like an obvious choice, and it's exciting that, that, that that's going to be made. Very cool. Okay, how about we jump into our main topic? And that is talking about The Caves of Androzani from 1984, written by Robert Holmes and directed by Graham Harper. Josh, you picked this one. So why don't you share a little bit about why you wanted to do this? Well, uh, getting put on the spot last week, and I, I felt... I felt a little bad because I was kind of down when we talked on pyramids of Mars and, and you know, that's kind of held as a classic. And I was like, all right, well, well maybe I'll, I'll bring up and we can talk about what I would consider to be a classic, but it's actually really interesting because I didn't really intend for it to connect to pyramids of Mars as much as actually caves kind of does. Like it's very, similar i mean obviously they're both being written by robert holmes and you also have a doctor in these stories that are kind of being pushed to their limits um and they're just completely devastatingly like everybody's dead by the end of the stories (laughs) right (laughs) so i i found that interesting but no it's because i don't think you're going to find many people who will dispute that caves of Androzani is one of the all time great doctor who stories. Yeah. And I think it's a fascinating, uh, look based on what that story is to the era that it comes from, because it is always held as being this great story, but it's not exactly what you would call like, you know, like the great example of the Davison era. It, it kind of stands out because it does things differently from the majority yeah. of the Davison era. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that I love about it that I find interesting. I mean, like I love Davison era. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like I don't mean, I'm going to say that caves is my favorite Davison story. I mean, like, it's obviously a great story and, you know, no spoilers going to get rated very highly by me, but, um, <laughs> but, um, like it is, is absolutely fascinating to me. I, there's just so much that I love about this story that it just, there's so many little nuances to it and just the whole trappings, the way the story is structured and set up and the way that the doctor interacts with the story is like so unusual from your, any sort of regular doctor who story that you ever get a chance to see. And mm. I, I just, it's so intriguing to watch. It is never boring to watch. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. So, Ashley, what's your thoughts about this one? So, when when you picked this last week, Josh, um, I I tried to hold it, but I do not like this story. Oh, um, excellent! <laughs> you you but, got to be no no dude. Let me, no. Let me let me let me take a step back. I I historically have not liked this story. 
this is one of those stories. I have this weird blind spot of, of areas in the Davidson area. I've seen them. I somehow missed them as we were, I was like growing up and seeing them and I've seen them like since, but I haven't seen them like a million times. Right. So this particular story gets, uh, gets rated like at the top of the list uh, in all many of the Doctor Who magazine polls and things like that. So when you said this, I'm like, Oh no. Uh, but that said, I've watched it this week. I rewatched it because I wanted to come in with fresh uh, thoughts to it. And yeah, I mean, a lot of what you, you said is absolutely true. It is super nuanced. There's lots happening in this story. There are lots of different sides to this. Like no one's the good guy and no one's the bad guy. It's gray. Like everything's gray and it feels very dirty, very gritty. Uh, not the way you think of the Davidson era. Like you said, I, I mean, I, I would say that it has a similar feel to what I think is a better story. <laughs> I'm going to get flagged for this too. Earthshock. Um, <clears throat> I think, I think, uh, <laughs> How are we I mean, friends? I do not understand how I like you so much, Ashley. <laughs> I think, I think, I think it has a similar feel to that in that era, right? But, but mainly we can talk about that comparison because there's there's a lot of things that Eric Saywood wants to do in this era that he does not pull off, but gets pulled off in this story. So, mm -hmm. like, I, I don't fair, disagree that you can make a connection to Earthshock in this, but well, this I mean, is caves. There's androids. There's you know, very yeah, but superficially, superficially, superficially. But right, right. but but basically, there is a tone and a type of like space gothic story that Eric Sayward wants to tell, and you can see that he wants to do it in Earthshock, but doesn't get pulled off. But it gets pulled off in this story. I feel like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's fair. Um, I do think, and this is the thing that I mean, when, when you're, when you're talking about how much you like this, what this is to me, and uh, you're not going to like this, uh, when, uh, what this is, is to me is a, just a lot of political melodrama. And it is to me, no different than the political melodrama of Peladon. Um, <laughs> It always comes back to Peladon, right? Because it's the same thing. That's what you say you don't like about Pel the Peladon stories, and it's happening here too. Now, I will grant you, you you guys know I look at things like we said, very surface level, right? So it is like that on a surface level. I I said all that to get a rise out of you. It is <laughs> much deeper than that, and it does come across. And after I I sat down and watched it, I'm like, yeah. I'm not going to be able to say I dislike this as much as I thought I was going to be able to dislike it. Right. It does have nuanced characters. It has, it has, man, like you said, Josh, the body count, there's one person that is introduced that isn't the doctor and Perry that survives this entire story. Yeah. Uh, one person. Um, yeah. And I actually, I had to go back and figure that out. I'm like, okay, one person survives, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's good. I, the other thing that you know about me is I, the grittier it is, the less I like it probably. That's just an Ashley thing. That's not anything else, right? I just, and this is a gritty story. Yeah. Uh, one of the grittiest in classic who I think. No, I, I totally agree I with that. I disagree with that. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean, obviously, obviously it's extremely gritty, but that's what I, one of the things I love about it is the, like, okay, we kind of talked about last week, you know, how we've got this whole era with Hinchcliffe is taking the doctor and putting them into, you know, well-known situations and seeing how like the doctor affects that type of situation, like putting them in different hammer horror movies and, and that sort of thing. This is playing with the same type of context, but doing it 
where you have this doctor who is not the, you know, superhero that Tom Baker's doctor was. He is somewhat, I mean, like, you know, as much as I love Davidson doctor, he always gets called ineffectual and passive because he's not out there. You know, he's, he's, he's reacting a lot to situations. I mean, like, it's not that he's not like out there saving the day. He does all sorts of things to like, you know, bring about action and, and resolutions to the conflicts that he's involved with. But I mean, like you, you can't deny that he is a much more of a passive character than like Tom Baker was as his doctor, which is one of the things that I enjoy that the contrast of his doctor and the situation he finds him in. And this is like the epitome of what happens when you take that type of character who is still like our hero, who still is, you know, going to win the day in the end, because that is just the nature of this television series. But you put him in like, what is almost like a super gritty crime drama of a story. And more than anything that we've seen before, like, this one feels like it could be deadly to the doctor. And it's not that he's facing like some grand, like super alien godlike power that could wipe him out. Like, like, you know, contrasting with pyramids of Mars, like pyramids of Mars, the doctor is up against a massively powerful being who could wipe him out at the drop of a hat. Right. But like seeing him up against that kind of thing, like, you know, like really thinking like, well, you know, whatever, he's going to figure it out. He's the doctor. He'll figure something out. But here, like, You've got a doctor who is just like he could have he could be shot at any point in time in the story. And the story makes you believe that it's a very real possibility that it's just like there's people being shot left and right. Um, he's not being treated as anyone special during the entirety of the whole story. It's like he's almost an afterthought to these people around him at times. And like he could have very easily just casually been killed and no one would have bad an eye. And that feels dangerous in a way that we don't see in Dr. Who a whole lot. I agree with that. And the other thing about this is no, he isn't going up against some major galactic powerful being. He's going up against poisoning. Like he, his battle really is, inside himself physically mm -hmm. and it's it's kind of like he and perry are like thrown into a river that's rushing toward a waterfall and all you can do is try and survive and yes. so this story is about him trying to save perry's life and his own life and it even comes down to the point where he doesn't even know if he's going to survive a regeneration so it's not even the guns that are pointed at him that are deadly it's it's everything around him and the situation that he and Perry are in are, is so dire. Yeah. And um, I think, I think that is the strength of this story. Seeing it's, him fight against the current to try and survive. It's what I love is what I think makes the story really special is again, the doctor is not here to right wrongs. He's not right. here to like take down the evil corporation. The only thing, 
part the doctor really has to play in this grand story set across you know the two androzani planets is he's he's the match that like lights the torch paper on everything else that happens like he does not have any impact on anything that goes on around him like anything dealing with zek and his battle with the company on androzani all that stuff gets resolved completely without him it's just everybody making assumptions about what's going on because he happens to be there and it just sets the dominoes from going down and meanwhile he doesn't even care he doesn't know what's going on like i mean like he he does but it's all completely in his backseat to him because his only focus is getting Perry to safety and saving her life and watching him struggle to just be able to get down to those damn caves. All he wants to do is get down to that bottom cave to get to that damn bat. And all this other stuff going around him is just, you know, making it hard for him to do that. And he's not getting involved. He's not trying to save anybody's problems. He's just trying to get down to that cave and watching that play out around him as all these things like, you know, manipulate around him like to prevent him from happening, and they're all playing out against each other. It's just a fascinating look, and Davison is just phenomenally pulling off the stops. I mean, he is so good in this story. Just like, and as things get worse and worse, and he gets more manic and desperate, yeah. and like you really feel the danger that he is in, and yeah. just how desperate he is to get this resolved. Oh my. God, he's so good in this. He is great in this. It is, it's a toss up for me between this and Snake Dance as his two best performances on the show. I think he is remarkable in both of those, but there is a, there's an, a tangible desperation in this one that I think just sets it up above everything else. It yeah. is so strong. Because it's like you can really tell, like, because the the real villain of this piece, and a villain is is you know too hard, but if like if if there is a real person that he's fighting against in this, it is basically his own tendencies to jump in without thinking things through. Hmm. That's a very you know fifth doctor thing to do. He just kind of like blunders in without thinking, and this time like it's going to kill Perry because he can't be bothered to you know, pay attention to what's going on or, you know, make sure that Perry knows what she's doing or looking after her. Like he drags this poor girl off to some alien planet for who knows why there's no real reason for them to be there other than he wants to just go off exploring. And when he does so, and she lands like within five minutes, she's landed in a big giant poison mushroom thing. (laughs) And, you know, from there on, it's just a ticking clock. And it's all because he can't be bothered to know where he's at or what he's doing. And he realizes this and like, this is my fault. I've got to fix this. And that's then we're off the races. It's such a good examination of his doctor. I love it so much. Yeah. I think one of the things to, to jump just a little bit that, struck me uh and and maybe this is because i've listened to to uh nicola bryant as perry in big finish more and she's done more really uh than than i have i've seen her on the show in a long time um but just how young perry appears in this in this story uh and and i'm sure uh planet of fire was right before this right um and and i'm sure that i've not watched that one in a while either I, most of my interaction with Perry is through the sixth doctor. And then, like I said, I have like this weird blind spot where I haven't seen as many of these I've seen them. It's just, I haven't seen them as much 
it what struck me is just how young Perry appears to be in this story and how it comes across. And and I don't remember how old she's supposed to be, uh, but man, she she feels it it comes across just super young. And I I love that because you get the impression that she truly is. Well, she's a well, she's in university, she's a student, right? So yeah, so so she's probably supposed not, to be pretty not, young, uh, but pretty young, and it really comes across as someone who's written and presented as someone who is naive uh in a way not not in a negative way but in a just a, a, out of youth uh naivety mm-hmm. of youth right and i think uh that comes across really well and plays well into the story um and i don't think a lot of companions up to this point has done that well uh the the same way that this plays uh, I, I really like the way that Perry is written into the story and presented in the story and and works off that way. And, and just you get the impression that she truly is kind of the, the doctor is almost like put him, putting himself into uh, the role of like a mentor in just this little amount of time. Right. The small amount of time. Um, the, the same way, maybe that like Tom Baker did with uh, the fourth doctor did with Adric, uh, it It plays off well with Perry as well. Well, you know, building on that, you make a a really interesting point there. And we were talking earlier about how this isn't, this is almost the antithesis of a typical Davison story. So when you're talking about previous companions, you have Tegan, whose mind gets taken over by the Mara, and you have Nyssa, you know, who gets involved in all that nonsense with Terminus. And then you've got Turlow, who's like facing the Black guardian and all this kind of stuff but when it comes to perry in this story the danger that she is in is from this guy who this creepy dude who is like stroking her face and sniffing her hair and it feels dangerous it feels like a real danger it doesn't feel like a sci-fi fantasy you know makeup thing it feels like she is in physical danger and I just want to say, you know, since we brought up Nicola, that she doesn't get a whole lot of like really meaty stories in Doctor Who. She gets two, I think, two very, very good scripts. One of them is basically the last scene that she's in. And then you get this one. And she is, I think, phenomenal in this story. And she should have been given more material like this. Well, I mean, the unfortunate thing with this story is, is like, oh, so I guess this is the story that Perry has to be in, where bad guy lusts after Perry and treats her like an object and does horrible things to her because of it. Like, mm-hmm. it's just unfortunate that this is what they they go with because it works really well here. But, you know, by the, the third or fourth time we see it <laughs> next season, it's like, um, maybe we shouldn't do this so much, but uh, yeah, I know, but it never worked as well anytime no, other than this because it's either it's Sill or it's the the big monster in uh time lash, and you know, it's it's never something that that makes any kind of it doesn't make your skin crawl the way this does. No, absolutely no. I I agree with you one hundred percent. It's just I, I feel my I to say that is like I feel like they took the wrong lesson yeah. about Perry from the story is what I mean yeah, by I that. It's like that's that's what they decided to do with her rather than to actually 
have her because it, it really does. I mean, like if you have to stop and, you know, set aside like the stuff that she's done for big finish. Like if you look at her televised stuff, it is hard to reconcile like what she gets to do in this story and what she does in this story with what she gets to do with Colin later on. It's, it's yeah. really unfortunate. Um, and I, she doesn't get the credit that she deserves because of that. But here it is. I mean, yes, she is a, playing a damsel in distress for the back half of the episode as she is all, you know, passing away and almost dying. But, you know, she is given it 110% in the story and making it believable. And one of the things that I really like about this story is you've got a doctor and companion who still don't really know each other at this point in time. And yep. they're just getting to know each other. And like, you can kind of feel that in their performances. And I think Nicola especially does an excellent job of, you know, she's had one adventure with this guy and, you know, she's off on this life of adventure. And now like, here is where he has brought her. And she's like, what is going on? Like, why am I now being trapped by, this creepy guy in a mask who was sniffing my hair <laughs> and but but then at the same time like you know you get i feel like you get like a little bit of a hesitancy about her and by the end of it like after everything the doctor goes through to like save her and it makes her realize like yeah this guy is somebody who deserves you know my friendship devotion like all the things that he's gone through and he's saved me and it almost makes you understand why she sticks around with Colin as long as she does, who had no rational right. person would have stuck around after the twin dilemma. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it begs, you, begs the question, like, how do you go from this to the twin dilemma? Well, that's, that's the discussion for when we cover the twin dilemma. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's a very good point, though, because I feel like Davison's seasons get better and better as they go. And I feel like his third season has got some incredibly solid material in it. And then John Nathan Turner has this brilliant idea of we're going to end the fifth doctor one story early and give our new sixth doctor a, a, a running start. We're going to, we're going to give him an introduction to the audience. So that'll carry over to the next season. And then they pair up, the best one of the best arguably the best story they had ever accomplished on doctor who with a trash fire that is twin dilemma mm -hmm. and i feel like that is the biggest undermine of colin's character more than the coat more than all the other nonsense that people talk about that's what really does him in yeah anyway you know i <laughs> you know, I've given Eric Sayward a lot of crap over the years because, you know, I, I, he's, you know, always seems to have been very focused on the violence and loves telling stories about his mercenaries. But, you know, I've got to give credit where credit is due because obviously, you know, he, this story wouldn't have come to pass without Sayward working to get it yeah. past JNT. Like, and I, and I, and I start to realize like maybe, I should be more harder on JNT than I am on Eric Sayward because a lot of the issues came from JNT. Let's be honest, but yeah, yeah, that's true. But uh, I mean, like, I, I do want to give credit for Sayward. For, I mean, number one, like, he fought to get Robert Holmes in here, and right. you know, he added a lot to the story that um, 
you know, didn't all come from Robert Holmes. So I, this is just a mea culpa from like, you know what, Eric say we're not so bad. All right. A breakthrough. I love it. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is it's been a long time since Robert Holmes has been on the show. And the last mm -hmm. script that he did was the power of Kroll in the key to time season, which was about gun runners on an alien planet and the doctor and Romana getting caught up in a situation that, you know, and it's a very different story, but it's very similar setting in a way. But the, 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 the years between those two stories equals the, the distance in quality between those two stories. Cause mm -hmm. Kroll is a, is a good story. It's okay. It's not a great story, but, you look at that. And, and of course, that was at a time when Holmes was really starting to kind of want to step away from Doctor Who and do other things. And he kept getting roped in to do more and stuff. And, you know, after that break, after having that separation from Doctor Who for that little while, he comes in with the classicest of classic Doctor Who stories. I just think that's an interesting comparison between those two things, his his last one and then this one. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It's just a world of difference, you know, and what's interesting is, you know, I, I'm pretty sure Holmes was on record as saying that he wasn't really familiar with Davidson Doctor, so he yeah. was kind of writing the story with Tom in mind. And you can kind of see that. Um, but, you know, it was, it's just it's funny how things come together because you would think that that wouldn't work. And yet. Right. Davison takes that material and makes it his own. So even though like you've got lines, like there's a lot of quippy lines that the doctor has that obviously, you you know, Holmes was writing like, well, here's how Tom would say this and I'm writing this in there. But Davison takes it, wraps it up in the fifth doctor persona and makes it work. It's yeah. like all of his quippy stuff is, it's not like, you know, Tom being, you know, flippant and, you know, I acting like he doesn't care about anything. This is the doctor kind of trying to keep a brave face on and standing up to these bullies. And it yeah. just, it, it shouldn't work and yet it does. It's such a great, it's just sometimes, you know, you get your chocolate peanut butter together and then you get magic. It's well, he, he does it in a way that's a little bit more barbed, you know, mm -hmm. it's more acerbic and, and it fits the tone of this story. Yeah. Beautifully. You know, Josh, you said earlier, and I hadn't really thought about this. I'm sure we've talked about this before, but, uh, Sayward's kind of that idea of like the space Gothic is, is spot on. And, and it, it has that, and it makes sense that you bring in Robert Holmes for that. Right. I mean, Robert Holmes mm -hmm. is, is, uh, he was there when Dr. Who was the most goth. So I, I'm thinking back on the stories from that era and you're right. It, it did have, uh, I mean, obviously all, um, script editors, in that era kind of like set the tone, but it, I just really hadn't thought of it. You think of Terminus, uh, I already mentioned Earthshock. Mm -hmm. They do have that really gritty, um, space, dirty space, which is weird. And, and you're right though, uh, that juxtaposition with like Peter or the Davidson doctor, who is a clean doctor. A clean is probably the best word you can yes. use for him. Sure. I mean, he is, he's, he's spotless as opposed to, past doctors they all have their thing he's very clean so when you push that up against like the griminess of of space and and, and and i guess i guess in a way you think of the those early tom baker stories on nerva beacon and those maybe those were a little a little gritty right uh a little dirt, dirty space old space equipment that kind of mm -hmm. stuff 
but not to the level that you're talking here. And and honestly, until you said that, I, I hadn't really because I because I think of the Davidson era as the Davidson era, as that like clean, crisp, because you think of the five doctors, you think of things like that that are very bright, uh yes. celebratory, but then you think about when they're in space, uh, and it is incredibly grimy and and um even I, I know I mentioned Earthshock, but it does have a similar feel to this. Uh, and I hadn't really I hadn't really thought well, about that. One of the best examples in Davison of a gritty space story is the previous Sayward script, and that's Resurrection of the Daleks. Right. So yep, this absolutely. is sort of a continuation of that tone, I think. You see what they were going for. Like obviously you want to do different from what you did over the Tom Baker years. And so you've got a completely different type of doctor. And so how do you make him stand out? Well, you've got this clean, you know, beacon of morality and you contrast him versus like just the grunginess. And I mean, and this, and this also is, you know, it's, it's kind of speaking of the way things are going in the eighties, people are getting dissatisfied with the way the world is going with capitalism. And, you know, we're starting to have mistrust of government and of corporations. And so things are not as bright and perky in the future as maybe we once thought they were uh, supposed to be. And so obviously we're looking at a time period where, you know, the stories are going to be turning grittier and darker and you want to have the doctor stand in that story and kind of like stand out and put him against it. And so you see what they're going for. It just doesn't always gel. And until we get to this one, because again, like you can definitely see like, you know, from Earthshock to even like, you know, where's the deep and, and resurrection of the Daleks and all, all that kind of stuff. Like it's violent, dark worlds that the doctor is in and having to react and deal with. But yeah. I think what really works in this story is it's like its own little self-contained world and it mm -hmm. feels real. Mm -hmm. It's not like you've got the Daleks who have been running around. Like when you put them into the story, you can make it as dark as you want to, but I mean, there's still the Daleks and Cybermen, but here it is just nasty people doing nasty things. And it yeah. feels like an actual real dangerous world that any one of us could have found ourselves in and to see him react to that. I mean, yeah. and then it clicks. I think one of the things that really emphasizes that point that you're making is Robert Holmes himself, because when you think of a Robert Holmes script, historically, the thing that that sort of like is the hallmark of Robert Holmes is the the quintessential double act. In every story, he has that pair of characters that play off each other and are usually comedic in some way or another. And in the, there's one or two examples of there being two double acts in a particular story. This one, there isn't anything like that because every character, even if they're working with somebody else, they are out for themselves. There is no double act because there is not one character that is paired up in any kind of cooperative way with another character. Everybody is against each other. Everybody is out for themselves. And that's what makes it feel dangerous. Yeah. And like, and it actually points out, like there's no good guys in the story. No. I mean, like at, at the very best, like, you know, maybe you find Jack sympathetic for everything he's had to go through, but like, let's also call a spade a spade. He is a creepy weirdo. 
Yeah. And, I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, he is. He's a creepy weirdo who has no compunctions about killing hundreds of soldiers. And, right. you know, and, and holding a, a, you know, a planet's production hostage and whatnot. Yeah. So, yeah, there's nobody to, to root for here. It is just a bunch, a bad story of bad people doing bad things to each other. Yep. And then all getting their comeuppance by the end of it. You know, the point about the double act, though, I think this is that's an interesting point, because I think there is a double act, but we see it after it's broken up. And that is uh, Jack and the 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 other character. I can't think of his name. Morgus. Uh, yeah. Oh, OK. You get the impression that they were good friends or at least colleagues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and now you get to see kind of like what happens when that double act hmm. goes bad. Right. That's uh, interesting. Of course, you didn't see them as the double act, but you, but you, you got some. They had a history. Uh, they had worked together. They had designed things together, and then one stabbed the other one in the back. And uh, and and I, so I, I think there is a double act. It's yeah. just that you don't see it. You see it after the breakup, right? That's interesting. We haven't even talked about Morgus and Timon yet, and. I mean, I don't think that's as important or as weighty as any of the other stuff that we've talked about, but I think it's an interesting no. thing. I, I agree. You've got, I mean, obviously, like the standout, I don't, I don't want to call him villain, bad guy character is, is Sheriff Jack. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, he's the guy in the mask. He's the one that gets all the attention and is doing everything and setting things in motion. But, you know, Morgus as just this, completely slimy uh, you know corporation head who is you know working actively against the government to fill his own pockets and he's you know supplying arms to jack even though he's you know standing in the way of their production of the spectrox and it is he is so slimy yeah. and i when he kills the president it is <laughs> such a great moment it is just like well, I guess he's decided it, this is where we're going from here. And the, the, the funniest part is, of course, he does it for nothing. There's no yeah. reason for him to do it. There's nothing going on. But because he thinks the doctor is a government spy, he's like, well, I guess it's time for me to kill the president and get out of Dodge. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great moment because obviously if he stopped to like do any sort of like research or think things through other than worrying about his own skin in his pocket, like he could have stopped his downfall from happening, but he doesn't even stop thinking about it. He's just like, I'm going to go immediately to murdering the president because he must be the one who's after me. And then I'm going to go and get all the Petrox I can and retire on some, you know, out, outer rims planet. And, right. uh, you know, Bob's your uncle, but obviously <laughs> that's not happening for you, Morgus. Right. Uh, it's a great comeuppance, honestly. You know, comparing him to a new series character, uh, as, as you're saying this, uh, and actually, as I think about the way, like we have, you eventually see his downfall, um, it's very similar to Van Staten in in Dalek, right? Mm. Uh, those those characters are a lot more alike than than you think. Uh, and and I'm I'm as you're saying that, I'm like all oh, those things like Van Staten, you can tick those off also. Um, very uh, very similar character, um, and I'm I'm wondering if there was some inspiration there uh, with Van Staten. Hmm. Would surprise me. I mean, like, I think Morgus is. I have a lot more slimy and uh, oh, deadly. wait, yeah, more, way but, more slimy. Uh, like he yeah. has, like, you could say, yeah, you said Jack's the obvious villain, and he is, but it's almost like a bait and switch, right? Because like mm -hmm. he's not the bad guy. Yes, he does bad things, 
But like you're right, Morgus is like there's no you can at least be sympathetic to Jack, right? Yeah, he's crazy, he's kind of creepy. Uh he was but but he was put into that position where Morgus just made his own choices. Like that's just the mm. kind of person he wanted yeah. to be, yeah. which is way worse, in my opinion, than Jack and how he got to where he was. Yeah. Um, before we wrap it up, I, I, I feel like we do a disservice if we don't talk about Graham Harper. Well, I was just about to say, because, Woo-hoo! you know, when you're, when you're making a stew, you, you got to have all the great ingredients, but you got to have something to stir it right in order to make right. it excellent. And boy, does Graham Harper stir all the elements that he's get to make magic. And this would not be a classic story, I think, if we did not have the direction yeah. of Graham Harper. Like, it is just, you could just feel the energy that he's bringing to directing the story and it, it, the way he puts it into his actors and the way that he gets the most out of them. Like, you know, they always talk about how most directors direct from the booth, right? Uh, yes. At least back in the day. But they, they always talk about how surprising it was to have Graham Harper down on the floor with them. And you can really tell from every bit of this story. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just his work with the actors. It's the way he plans his shots. He does, he does like very wide pans. He does, I mean, just little things like, like cross fades, like Dr. Who doesn't do cross fades, but he did it and he does all these little directorial, he, he like shoots from, you know, unexpected angles. He does all these things to keep the story fresh and to keep it moving and to, to keep it exciting. And I feel like he is the hero of this. I mean, yeah. even though this story has a lot of heroes, Peter Davison, Robert Holmes, I think that Graham Harper is is one of those guys. He is one of the things that makes this so successful. Yeah, I mean, just so many interesting choices made during the course. I mean, like from the way, like you said, the way he frames his shots, just like the editing decisions being made here. Like yeah. the, there's one that always stands out to me, which is such an odd choice, but it really works is we, we go from jack like basically telling his backstory like and the reason why he's got such a hard on to like revenge against morgus <laughs> to like and he's in the middle of his like rant we then cut to morgus and timon and doing all of like their shady stuff and then we cut right back to jack like he's like continuing on an exact same spot where he left off it's such a weird place yes. to place that cut but it's so interesting it works yeah there's another one uh, uh, my favorite scene in the thing is where um two of the gun runners are like threatening each other and they're pushing, he's pushing the guy toward the cliff edge and the cameraman is standing above them, shooting down at the guy who's on his back and following them right up to the edge. And you can see that this is an actual cliff. This is not CGI. And it is such a great shot. And that feels dangerous being yes. so close up on them. Like, and it really sells the danger. Like these guys are dangerous. Like I, you know, compare these guys with like freaking Linton, his crew, like <laughs> right. and his crew feel like, you know, they're playing make-believe these guys like will cut your throat as, so, as, so, as soon as look at you. Like, yeah. and you believe it. Absolutely. All right. I guess it's time, man. Let's, let's give this a rating. 
Now, Josh, I'm I'm just curious to know where you're coming in on this. I'm this is a ten out of ten. You can't rate this less than a ten. I was wondering if you were gonna go as yeah, far this, as a ten. I you know, you know, I, I try to guard my tens um, right. closely, but this is I mean, like the the only negative you could possibly give this story is that stupid cave monster that doesn't need to yes. be in the story at all because they cut all the scenes actually involving the cave monster. Like just they should just cut it all together because it doesn't I mean, like, obviously, you're a 1980s Doctor Who. You're you're not going to always have your monsters look the best anyway. Like, usually, you know, the best ones are the ones you don't fully see. And they, they kind of did a little bit. But obviously, then you got this guy in a suit with a big mouth that doesn't move. Just obviously <laughs> a bunch of rubber. And, like, it, like, you could take that out and it would not affect the story at all whatsoever. They should yeah. have. It's the one thing that anybody that talks about the story can really point down on. But it's such a minor issue that that's doesn't get any points knocked off for it. That's the only thing you could possibly say bad about the story. It's just the performances, a plus plus everybody's working on fire. It's just a great dialogue, great material, a great story. Just what it says about the era, what it says about this doctor. It's just chef's kiss. This is a 10 out of 10 story. Okay. I'm right with you. I'm a 10. And we're going to let Ashley bring up the rear on this one because I feel like he's going to be the outlier. Thanks for listening to Doctor Who A to Z. You can find episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and other podcast networks theme remix used by kind permission of Doctor Who composer Dominic Glenn. We'd love to hear from you, so please drop us a line at Z at gmail or leave a comment wherever you're listening. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe and consider leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. See you next time, and until then, remember, we're all stories in the end. Just make it a good one.